Hello, and welcome to Trikai 9, another podcast on Story Screen Presents, where we discuss two different movies that are made in a year that ends with the number nine. We're still working our way through 1999, and I'm your host for this episode, Diana Jamiro, joined by my very lovely friends. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Bernadette Gordon. <laughs> Oh gosh, and I'm Linda Kadea. Yeah, yeah, we're here, and we're we're getting into a groove doing the podcast remotely as we continue through the pandemic times. Weird times for sure. Maybe in the future, yeah, maybe we won't even notice the difference, but it'll be nice when I get to see you guys in person. When we yeah. when we get to record in person, I'll just be literally sitting in your laps the whole time. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm touch starved, and I will just love my friends yeah. very hard. <laughs> yes. So uh, this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about identity, and the two films that we're going to be discussing are 1999. Uh, I don't know if I would call them classics, although maybe one of them. But uh, they were definitely kind of they were they were the talk back then. Um, one is Fight Club, and the other is the talented Mr. Ripley. And I'm gonna hand the reins over to my co-hosts to give a little recap before we get into the question portion. Who Whoa. wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. <gasps> a little Brenda. Fight Club. Yeah, that's a treat. So, in 1999, David Fincher d- directed and released Fight Club, starring Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, and it's an adaptation of a novel written by Chuck Palahniuk, and oh, I, you always have a hard time knowing how to say that name. I've, I've said it like that for so long, I don't know if it's right, but that's the way that my mouth good says to me. it. <laughs> you don't know if it's right, and at this point, you're too afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it stars Edward Norton as a nameless character, and it's the idea of deconstructing your life, which is full of possessions and ideas of what it means to be successful and to live a full life. And it's about deconstructing that and stripping your life to the studs and restarting and trying to understand who you are and how to feel alive in like the most visceral and masculine way possible. Yeah, masculine. Um, it deals with a lot of like weird ideals. It seems very misguided now. Like the more and more I watch it, uh, the harder it is for me to like reconcile with like how cool I thought it was back when it came out in like '99. I definitely I'm thought it was cool. that. There's there's a lot of things that just weren't done in film. Oh, for sure. Regardless of, like, the connotations of stuff in the story. It's just, it, the way it was shot was very new and cool. Definitely. <laughs> but yeah, so it kind of deals with the idea, um, obviously it's called Fight Club, and it stems from the idea of fighting yourself and fighting others to kind of, like, feel the most alive you can. And that bleeds into other aspects of the film, but we'll get into those in a little bit. Yo, that is... It also has meatloaf in it. Meatloaf! The singer, not the food. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yo, I have a a different reading of that book written by a gay man. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, I love the novel, too, but I feel like the movie is very different from the novel. I think it's very different, but I think, and of course, like, we'll get into it when we, when we get into it, but, like, I think the sensibilities of, like, Chuck Palahunit, oh, fuck, none of us know how to say his last name, ah! I think the, the sensibilities of the fact that, like, Chuck is a queer man, like, really come through in, in ways that are, um, very coded, but, like, very apparent once you sort of, like, start to see it, I'm just like, mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and so when a lot of, like, I really hate telling people that I like this movie, because they're just like, oh, yes, and did you like this? And I'm like, I like it for totally different reasons than you like it. Please don't. No, stop. We're done. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please. 
please, please don't tell me about how much you identify with how with Brad Pitt's character. Please. Ah, yes. Please. Okay, that. Very much that. We'll, that. we'll talk about that. We will. <laughs> All right. So, Linda. talented Mr. Ripley. Um, so this 1999 film was adapted from a 1955 novel um, by Patricia Highsmith, um, who is super important, again, because she is a relatively, she's also like a queer author in her own right. Uh, she wrote the novel that Carol was based on, um, and she often oh, signed- I still haven't watched that. I need to. I'm not spoiling you when I say it's very gay. Yeah, I want to watch that. But yeah, so... Yeah, so Blanchett, man. She's in this film, too, yeah. She's in Talented Mr. Ripley. So yeah, so basically, uh, Patricia Highsmith, who has her own complicated relationship with queerness and gender, um, is a thriller author, and Talented Mr. Ripley is about um, a young man named Tom Ripley, who in this film is played by Matt Damon, who is hired by... Herbert Greenleaf to get his son, Dickie Greenleaf, um, out of Italy, where he's been on, like, an extended flamboyant hedonistic vacation with his girlfriend. Um, is his girl- His girlfriend is Marge, who is the, um, Gwyneth Paltrow's character is Marge. And that's Dickie's girlfriend. And so the more that- the more time that Tom spends with Dickie and his girlfriend and the sort of, like, other socialites that appear in the film, um, the more he just sort of becomes obsessed with Dickie. Um, and he ends up killing Dickie and, like, assuming his identity in certain ways. And then, like, it's about him being exposed by Marge through almost the whole film and, like, also lying to another girl named Madeline, who is the... Or sorry, Meredith, who is the Kate Blanchett character that wasn't really in the book, but like provides a lot of tension and, and drama. Um, and sort of like the lies that he tells about whether or not he is who he says he is and like he loves who he says he loves and like what he what he wants and doesn't want. So it's it's really about um it's it's a thriller about like Tom's descent into kind of like identity crisis and how he just sort of tries to survive and the lengths he's willing to go to. That's it. And it's heavy. It's it's kind of a sad one. It's very sad. I think it's yeah. I think it's one of those things where like it takes um it really takes on the identity of like a tortured villain who sort of the opposite of or not the opposite but like a very a very interesting foil to Fight Club where there's not really a lot of remorse in Fight Club in general. Like, it's it happens very rarely, but Matt Damon's character feels nothing but remorse and guilt and, like, hurt. Um, he's very he's very dramatic, like a good gay boy in the closet. Um, he's very, yeah, so he, he just, like, he feels a lot all the time. We love him. There's a lot of feelings in this movie. So many feelings. It's kind of like Magic Mike where you go in expecting like kind of just a fun romp in the Italian beaches and then you realize, oh boy, oh god, so many yeah. feelings everywhere. Feelings. Everywhere. Yeah, definitely uh, that that film in particular has like a lot of sort of like the full these Hollywood glamour to it where everyone's like wealthy and they're going to hear opera and they're wearing fancy clothes and then that's like very starkly in contrast to fight club where everything is like dirty and sad looking (laughs) um but one of the things that i thought was kind of interesting with both of these characters is kind of just like edward norton's narrator since we don't know his actual name um and then you've got tom ripley what do you guys think? Like, what are the the reasons each of them kind of want to be somebody else? Because I feel like they're motivated for different reasons. Like, why do you think that each, each of them wants to kind of either create another version of themselves or just straight up pretend to be somebody else that they know? 
All right, so yeah, I'll go, go first it. with um, Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley is pretty obvious in, you know, the kind of way that, like, you sort of need a very uncomplicated uh, desire for the kind of thriller that, that they're telling. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty straightforward that he wants to live the life that Dickie leads. He wants wealth and comfort yeah. and, like... He's, he's poor. very poor. <laughs> yeah, and he's also, like, a closeted man. Like, it's not hard to imagine why he wants yeah. um, to be a different person other than, like, a, a poor bo- a poor Brooklyn boy, like, in a, in a borrowed Princeton jacket, you know? Like, he's, it's, it's not, um, there's, it's not hard to figure out why he wants to be someone else. It's because he's never actually been able to be anyone. Do you think, though, that, like, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that he kind of takes on, like, because I feel like it is pretty apparent that he is closeted throughout a mm-hmm. lot of the film, but then he still goes to these lengths to kind of pretend to be Dickie or pretend to be attracted to Meredith or, like, I was kind of curious whether that is supposed to be more, like, um just being in the closet and not being okay with being gay or just using it as a way to confuse Marge or throw, you know, hints on something else. And then actually he doesn't care. He's just kind of setting things up for himself. I know when I watched it, because I haven't read the novel, so I really have nothing to go off for that. But I did feel like watching the movie, which I had seen once before, but didn't really remember a lot of it. So yeah. rewatching it was really good for me. Um, it seemed like he says he has these talents of impersonating people and just doing a very good job of forgery. And so it seemed to me like as a closeted man, he had been doing these small things throughout his life to try to become a different person so that he can exist in society. And this is that makes sense. the first time that he's given like an applicable way to actually do it. Mm. And he kind of feels like this is like a big game of pretend. And because yeah, it's like his shining, shining moment. <laughs> right. And because he's able to pull it off to a certain degree at the beginning, he starts like getting more and more comfortable doing it. And so right. I think when he does put on these affections for these women, I think it's because he's becoming so used to the deception that it becomes more natural to him. And he starts to get even more confused, but more like entrenched in the lie that I think he uses the affections for the women because he's playing like the male character who's supposed to have the affection for the women. And so it comes easier for him now because he's, like, actually becoming well-versed in becoming even more closeted, which is, to me, it seemed very, very tragic. Yeah. I mean, more and more closeted, but at the end of the film, like, he is, like, sharing a room on a boat with another man. Like, it's pretty apparent that he's, like, found part of himself. Um, Well, that's why the movie's so sad. I I think because it seems like he finally gets what he actually wants and seems like yeah, it's viable. Yeah, he finds somebody who who accepts him at least to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where like I don't know if the the affection for the woman is fake necessarily, but I definitely think it's complicated. Um I think that he's a character who's sort of like experimenting and like doesn't know what kind of gender roles uh, apply to people of different social standings if they're as rigid as the gender roles of um, kind of the the lower and poor class because that's something that comes up a lot in literature and fiction and like in real life like if you're poor you don't really have the room to experiment as if you were rich or you have the kind of like elevated privilege um, of class wealth because you don't have those sort of systems in place that will support you even if like you don't conform. So, I think it's That's one of those true. things where he's really he's really like experimenting and I I would hesitate to say that he's like I know I call this a gay love story because it is, but I also would hesitate to call him gay. Like I think he's just like a queer, a very queer yeah. um a queer question like gender, sexuality, he yeah. seems lost. Yeah, there's just a lot about him that's very yeah. unknown. 
I think I Right. Yeah, he's he's like in love with the people, but he's also in love with the lifestyle. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I I like there's that part of the movie where uh Gwyneth Paltrow Marge is talking about how like when Dickie is like the son cuz he like turns to you and gives you all of this great attention and then he forgets about you when he focuses on someone else and I I think that that can be true in a lot of different situations where it's like you know rich or poor or like the in crowd just like the idea of of Ripley uh, all of a sudden getting all this positive attention and like being the best friend of the cool kid and like getting to go to the jazz clubs and do all this stuff with him and then it flipping like a week or two later when another friend comes to visit or he's like oh you know you can be quite boring like that's like the tipping point for for Ridley and you're sort of like oh what the it's just like so crazy but yeah what did you guys think about um, in terms of Fight Club then? Because it's sort of a different scenario where it's himself. Spoiler Question alert. Mark. But, um, <laughs> oh, we've stopped doing spoiler you know, alerts like the, at the beginning of the podcast. I know. Um, seriously, Hammer. it's been out for a really long time. But what do you guys think about, um, you know, Edward Norton's narrator and what kind of motivates him to meet or create Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden. I mean, I love that, again, it's about a man who's been going to these different help groups. And he does yeah. tell Marla at a certain point, he was like, I've been coming to these for a year. And right. when he first meets Tyler, he was like, Tyler's owned this house for a year. I don't know if he like owns it or if he's renting it. But so like you start to realize that all of these psychological breaks happened at the same time, he started attending these meetings, yet he also started assuming, like, the Tyler Durden persona. And then he, yeah, like... they all start to line up. Right, right. So, I, again, I think it's, um, he does have some kind of break. He realizes that he's an insomniac and needs something to help him to feel more alive. And so he goes to meetings where people are dying. And then he has this, like, breakthrough and all of a sudden Tyler Durden is a thing. So I think it's interesting right. that it's kind of like, again, these people who are pretending to be other people and having these right. other lives kind of manifests this other person in their life. Because I kind of feel like um, pre-full-on Tyler Durden, Edward Norton's character is a lot like characters in Office Space. Like, he's bored. He's just, like, standing at the photocopier He's like visibly annoyed by the people around him. And he's also like just ordering shit on the Ikea catalog and like having a good time with it. But realizing like that it's just stuff and it's not really helping him. Yeah, I think for me, I see this. I see this break is definitely like, again, I'm always going to make it about like either the class struggle or the queer the, the problems of, like, the queer community, and that's just going to be my shtick for the rest of the year. Um, but yeah, it's, I see it definitely, like, again, as sort of, like, the, the class struggle of, like, someone who's, like, working day in, day out. Like, it's very capitalist. It's uh, acquiring things. It's yeah. very... Um, it feels very meaningless, but it's not necessarily meaningless because it's it lacks meaning. It's because, like, he can't assign meaning to it. Um, it's very much in his own head, I like much of the film. Um, there's just no way for him to quite uh, accept what reality is. Um, and he seems to think quite often, like, so the narrator character versus, like, the Tyler Durden persona, like, the narrator character can never actually, like, comprehend a way to break out of the habits that he's gotten into. And it very much feels to me like right. the identity of Tyler Durden is less about like is less about anything else and mostly about just like doing something new. Let's just like go to a new club today, guys. He can't try a new craft beer. He has to just go fight someone, I guess. Just just take up <laughs> brewing like every other hipster, please, Edward Norton, for the love of God. Well, yeah, because he at the, you know, kind of at the, the finale of it, he's talking about how uh, Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden is talking about how he's free 
in all of the ways that Edward Norton's character wants to be, but can't be. Um, and it's kind of interesting when you start to like, I don't know if you, if you are able to remember this, but like when you first saw this or one of the first few times you saw this movie, did it start to click for you? Was it a total surprise or did like certain things, you started to notice certain things at a certain point in the film where you're like, wait a second. <laughs> Is that I, I actually started to notice about halfway through when it felt like he was just like yeah. talking to himself the whole time. And I'm just like, he's not actually learning yeah. anything, is he? Like, he's not actually, like, generating ideas from the conversations that he's having with Tyler. Um, and then I think there were a couple, like, costume cues as well, where they were, like, basically wearing the same thing or wearing, like, imitations of the same thing, where I was like... Interesting. Hey. And then, like, uh, the way that Marla... I think the, the, like, tipping point was the way that Marla acted. And I'm just like what's what's going on here um right yeah Hel i love helena bottom carter in this <laughs> what she's a fucking awesome. powerhouse yeah my favorite part for sure <laughs> oh man she's so good but yeah I, I feel like that's one of the big red flags pretty early on where you're sort of just like oh she's just taking it like he's a total dick and then at a certain point she's like wait no this is not something's wrong here <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, I've seen this film so many times that I don't yeah. think I can properly remember the first time I, I watched it. To like, <gasps> me neither. I can't remember not knowing the Tyler Durden twist. Yeah. Like, it's totally. so far in the past that I can't even remember. But now when you watch it and you start seeing the blips of Tyler yes. being on screen, like, at the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. It's, like, so very early apparent. on. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's so disconcerting. When I first saw that, I was like, what was that? <laughs> like you said earlier um, like just very cool like no other movie was really doing something like that right or like showing the um kind of like you know the reenactment of oh the bomb is in the basement and it's gonna blow up the building and it's going through it's like all the sort of you know credits before mission impossible or something like that now but that wasn't really done and that could be definitely just to I feel like the time period was was very like the the late nineties, early aughts were kind of dealing with a lot of capitalism and like new weird like trying testing stuff out. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree with you guys on the on the capitalist themes of of shutting it down, of taking away the debt. I was like, oh, this is like Mr. Robot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially like watching something like Westworld now, you're like, oh, yeah. okay. These ideas are very much coming from someone who watched right. Fight Club a lot. <laughs> totally. Um, so what do you think as far as, like, these two characters, they are different, but um, I feel like they both kind of go through some obstacles before they realize who they are becoming. Like, whether it's obstacles trying to become somebody new or like before maybe for edward norton before he fully realizes who he actually is um what do you think of our, about some of the the different points in the film either plot points or just like actual physical things that happen to them that they're kind of fighting against to try and become this new person i think a lot of it comes from um for at least like in Talented Mr. Ripley, a lot of the things that he has to deal with are, like, the way that he feels like a reflection of the people around him. Um, he's he's never mm. really quite himself. He doesn't really have, like, a self to be. He's always sort of, like, yeah, That's so he's true. always sort of taking on these sorts of personas and these ideas and sort of, like, trying to be someone that everyone else knows. Like, even from the beginning where he's, like, oh, you went to Princeton, you might know my son. And, like, he's just like, yeah, probably, you know? Um, he's never... Yeah. He's, he's, like, constantly putting on... Like, he's constantly, like, trying on things and seeing if they work. Um, and when he finally, like, gets to try and, like, Dickie's clothes, I'm just like, mm, boy, you're so queer. Oh, man. You're so queer. That sequence... That sequence is so upsetting, not because of him trying on the clothes and dancing around, but like 
the the fact that he's then meant to feel ashamed when Dickie catches him, that's like the worst. And he's just like, you just told him earlier in the day that he could borrow and try on whatever he wanted. And now you're like weirded out because he is. (laughs) That's that's what realizing the like cute boy down the street is not, you know, like where he's like gay for you and not just like, you know, wants to be your friend. It's when he wants to make out with you a little bit and possibly be you and wear your skin. (laughs) I mean, it, it tends to freak some people out. Like, not me, not Hannibal Lecter, but, like, some people just, like, aren't <laughs> on the level. <laughs> Dickie's not on the fucking level. Um, I, de- I definitely think, like, Tom Ripley's character is is almost a little bit like a child, like, in, a, in, the, in the sense that he is kind of just, like, taking in what the parents or the folks around him are doing and then trying to say whatever he thinks will please them the yeah. most or, like, prevent them from getting pissed off at him because he just wants to stick yeah. around. But it is. It's depressing. Yeah, and I think I think that's the same thing that sort of happens with um, – that sort of malleability is echoed in the narrator's character in Fight Club where he's constantly, like, just doing whatever Tyler says to do. You know, like, Tyler says – hit a man he's like guess i gotta beat a bitch up like marla says like come with me to whatever and he's like sure why not like yeah babe you know like it it, i think the snapping point for him kind of like the snapping point for uh ripley is when he like actually physically assaults someone does he he physically assaults his manager with like the the keyboard right Doesn't he? Or does he imagine it? I don't, I don't think so. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I I mean, I love that scene when he starts beating himself up, and then he he says, like, some for some reason this reminded me of my first fight with Tyler, and you're kind of like, oh. Babe. Okay. But, oh, babe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, rem- I, I remember when I saw that the first time, that scene of him like beating himself up in his boss's office and when he throws himself into his like that's it. coffee table that I was like holy shit what is happening in this yeah, movie I think yeah I think that those are the scenes but, where he's finally like both both characters are finally like making a decision that is not the decision that other people want them to make yeah yeah like physically feeling mm-hmm. present in your own body yeah. right yeah. yeah so I think sure. I think that's that's yeah, the point I, or um yeah i guess like even the 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 whole like sequence where tyler kisses his hand and then puts the lie on it like that's like another like where he's just kind of telling him you know don't don't try and meditate be here in the moment in the pain and that's sort of like his character journey a lot of the movie is just to like actually be present because Otherwise, he's sort of going back and forth between zoning out and then letting Tyler take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. too, that they have clothes be such, like, a huge tell in both of these films. Because, like, your Ooh, physical yeah. body, too, obviously, but, like, the physical clothes that these people wear. Like, the narrator character saying, my wardrobe is starting to be, like, quite acceptable. Whereas you have Tyler over here, like, rocking, like, thrift store threads that, like, don't match yeah. at all. And right. you can tell that it's just, like, someone's desire to not care about the label and just wear what makes you feel, like, the most yourself. And just yeah. like Linda was mentioning earlier about the scene with the clothes, it's just very, very sad. And it also kind of makes you, I think Dickie's kind of, like, a whole other character to unpack. But I also yeah. found him fairly sad too he definitely does some terrible things in this film but he also seems like a person who has been told to be a certain way his entire life and this is like his rebellion against that but he can't quite find his way either yeah definitely i'm so yeah so before we talk more about the the central characters yeah let's talk about let's talk about dickie for a little bit and and about tyler jordan these people that they want to be or eventually become dicky is dick yeah he's a total dick dicky is such a fucking asshole <laughs> oh god i mean like he's but he's he's very he's pretty so golden he's very charming Oof. yeah he's very 
able to charm I mean, the people. Again, like I am never going to not do this. It's a class thing. Like when you are at that status, when you have that money, when you're expected to perform at that level, like that's how you act. Like that is like old money wealth just like dripping in sarcasm you know like he's not he's not doing it on purpose he's doing it because like that's the way he was like born and bred and raised like that's what you do right. at that when you're in that stratus of person i like don't i like don't like it but his performance is pretty great philip seymour hoffman when he shows up as his friend and he's just like <laughs> and you're just like oh god yeah. stop that yeah stop exactly it. and it's definitely it's like it's all the same it's like this persona that's like created to like reenact the trauma of class warfare just over and over and over again um but yeah so i mean dickie's just like a, a class monster uh anyway yeah and that's yeah. sort of the same thing as, like, Tyler, just, like, the opposite is, like, he's, you know, a class traitor, but he's also, like, doing it from the inside out and, like, fighting against it and being, like, an anarcho-anti-capitalist in a way where um, Ripley is, or Dickie is, is much more willing to go along with the system as long as it benefits him and he can exploit it. And it's the difference in between, like, right. Dickie's exploitation of the system and then Tyler's need to just, like, burn it all down. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. one of my favorite scenes is when Dickie is at the typewriter and Ripley is, like, reading over his stuff. And he was like, this has two T's. And Dickie is like, well, I don't need to learn how to read or type or anything. That's the promise of a first-class education and all this money that right? I have. Which uh. is a huge bummer because it's kind of like he's a child but in a man's body. And then that's yeah. kind of like how Tyler is, too. He, like, talks about learning things from being a Boy Scout. And he's kind of like a stunted version of what the narrator could have been. But, like, something got trapped and Tyler got trapped in the mind of the narrator until this point where he can, like, let out all of these primal urges. Yeah. It's funny. Um, so Mike watched it with me last night and... There's like the sequence where they're on the subway and there's like a Calvin Klein ad and they're like staring at, you know, like the abs of the Calvin Klein ad and they're like, you know, like, Hah. and then it immediately cuts to a scene of sh like the first time you see Brad Pitt with his shirt off beating somebody up, but he is like equally, if not more so, way more ripped. So and ripped. you're just kind of like, wait, what the hell is happening? Like, you're like, trashing that idea of Oof. that idea of masculinity but then he is that idea well <laughs> so. they talk about how like going to the gym is masturbation but then yeah. you see the narrator or tyler whichever way you want to look at it literally beating themselves and yeah. it's like hmm, beating each other up beating off right. not too right. different i'm totally i'm here to tell yeah. you it's gay <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very much I'm, so. I'm here, and I didn't. I'm here for this. This is if if I if my only purpose for like every single podcast is to just like sit in the corner and say it. It's, Hashtag it's gay. It gay. Um, I'll happily do that. <laughs> the gay uh, goblin in the yeah, corner. So oh, man. it was so weird watching these two movies back to back like this and realizing like, ooh, there's a very like. I guess not sensual in Fight Club sense, but two bathtub scenes where there's one man taking a bath and one man mm. watching. And I'm like, okay, 1999 yeah. was here for this. We're still here for it. <laughs> Geralt of Rivia in like the bathtub with uh, Yaskier, like just, we're still here for it. Like it's still a thing. And I'm just like, <laughs> I can read this code. I know what's going on. Um, yeah, gosh. Wild. And I mean, I'm just always really shocked that Dickie didn't catch on sooner that, like, Ripley was hitting on him. I think he... Well... I think he knew. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you guys. I mean, do you, I think to a certain extent he knew. It's just... And and it is sort of like a like a narcissism with, yeah, oh, everybody likes me. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I think he exploits them for sure. Yeah, I think it just got uncomfortable for him at a certain point where he was just like, oh, you know, you've overstayed your welcome, so it'll be good when you leave. 
<laughs> but I definitely, what do you guys think about Tom Ripley then, you know, latter half, Dickie's dead. He now has, so we've kind of talked about his relationships with sort of like pretending to like Meredith or even maybe pretending to like Marge a little bit in the beginning because he's sort of like trying to say to Marge, oh, you know, uh, he he was cheating on you and I'm the one who picked out the perfume for you and stuff like that, even if all of that is sort of a ruse. But then we have him meet Peter and it seems like he has a shot at a real relationship but I kind of found myself doubting whether or not he actually liked Peter. And I felt bad for Peter because I was sort of like, oh, is this his chance? Is he really happy or is he just saying what he thinks Peter wants to hear? Because it's so hard to know if if uh, Ripley is like being sincere at any point in the film. You're kind of like, oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, I know he talks about his demons a little bit. And I feel like that's pretty sincere. He's just talking about himself, but. I'm sort of of the opinion that Ripley is never quite sincere. He's never, he never gets yeah. to the point where he's able to be himself and live without lies or like the shadow of the trauma that he's been exposed to and the trauma that he's like given other people and like the murders that he's had to do. I use had very, very lightly here. The murders that he chose right. to commit. Totally. murders he chose to commit. Um, I think, so I don't ever think that he's really sincere, but I think that that's partially, like, not his fault. I think that he's just, like, such a um, compartmentalized, like, closeted character that even when he's starting to explore a relationship with a man who's um, presumably, like, open to it, like, you know, yeah. you can sort of assume that's, like, yeah. a consensual, like, yeah, we're both men in a relationship. We're going to be queer and together and navigate this. Even in that space, I don't think he's ever fully comfortable. And I don't think he's ever fully living with himself in the way that you need to live with yourself in order to be in, like, a healthy, stable relationship. Um, so, no, I don't ever think he's sincere. I think it's sad, but I think it's one of the... That's... The nature of a yeah. thriller, you know, like it's of the genre that he's never going to be totally um, available to another character. Do you think that means like he never actually becomes another person? Like, do you think he ever really becomes what he wants to be? Not really by the end of the movie. I don't, I don't think either yeah. of them do. Like either either the narrator or yeah. Ripley. Yeah. You guys want to talk about that a little more too? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that it's interesting that, because I, I, again, I don't know about the novel, but I found Ripley to be such a blank slate because literally from the first scene in the film, he's already kind of impersonating someone else. Mm -hmm. He's like filling a role of a pianist who couldn't make a gig. And right. so not only is he wearing a jacket that doesn't belong to him, but he's also playing a part granted he can still play the piano and it made sense for him to fill that role but him being the backing track of someone else singing is very interesting to me um, yeah. musically speaking and then his last connection is to someone who also like arranges pieces for a choir to sing mm -hmm. and i think he is just so used to being like the accompanist that he doesn't really know how to just be a solo artist yeah which is interesting to me and yeah i agree i don't think that he really knows how to be a real person it would have been interesting to get some backstory for him but because i don't have any backstory to go off of it's yeah. it's hard to imagine him ever being like a true fully formed idea of a human yeah i really like yeah. that idea especially because you need to read music i definitely think it's like you need to like play off of another person and another um I'm frozen. Ignore all of this. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah, yeah we can still good. hear you. Yeah. No, I, oh, I, you uh, can. I was gonna say, like the first. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you fine. Yeah, the first the. The first few minutes of the movie, I, I feel like it is kind of sympathetic to him because you're sort of like, oh, yeah, 
you're poor, you're working a ton of jobs. I could, I could totally see lying and pretending I went to Princeton to just like blend in, whatever. And then the fact that he immediately lies as soon as he arrives in Italy and says he's Tom Ripley, or not Tom Ripley, Dickie. says he's Dicky, And I'm like, you didn't need to do it that <laughs> that early you had to lie immediately like come on man mm-hmm. like like meredith doesn't know you're poor you still could have been tom ripley and just <laughs> pretended to be more wealthy like whatever it's, it's like it's meredith if he hadn't lied to meredith he could have gotten away with it all yeah and it doesn't <laughs> seem like he is even aware of her status before he lies but maybe he right. is just because of the luggage i don't know if yeah that was enough and her her best uh, Catherine Hepburn impression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. So you guys, what do you think then? I know you're talking about how you kind of feel the same way, also about Ed Norton's character. But do you feel like, in some sense, he does a little bit accept who he is by the end of the movie, or do you feel like he's also still like? I mean, he does finally realize that he and Tyler are the same. And he does attempt to take control of the situation. But that might not really be the same thing as, like, accepting yourself for who you are. Yeah, I... Yeah, definitely... Sorry. Gosh. Oh, God. Zoom. No, go ahead. Zoom. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> hey, we're doing this the is best all because can. of Zoom, not because we're bad at communicating with each other. Um, <laughs> zoom, zoom, zoom. Zoom, zoom. Um, yes. So, I don't think he does. I don't think he ever... I don't think he ever really accepts who he is. I think at the end of the film, he is in the same place that he was at the beginning of the film, just with a, a weird girlfriend. Uh, and a and a, a hole in his head from shooting yeah. himself. <laughs> God, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, also, with that, with that ending, you could reasonably read it, right, as he's dead and, like, that final scene is, like heaven that's like that final scene is not just like the final scene in the movie that's like ed norton's point of view for eternity is just literally holding marla's hand and watching the world burn is like the last thing that he's Mm. ever seen and that's like his heaven right yeah i think that read is particularly strong when you remember that at the very beginning of the film we are there with the gun in his mouth and there's the very famous phrase like when you die your life flashes before your eyes so it's like him telling the story of how he got to that Mm -hmm. point is the life flash before his eyes and so the fact that after he shoots himself he's still standing but tyler died if tyler died then uh Maybe he died too, and yeah, so yeah, it's all in his mind. Mm-hmm. I like so that. it's hard to say if you think that he's uh, like coming to terms with himself because I think he is somewhere else entirely at that yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, it's just like another level of delusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. that would be my answer too. I think I think so- solidly he's he's dead. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that makes the most sense to me, but that's not, I guess, how I originally thought of it when I first saw it, when it came out in the 90s. I was just like, oh, I was like, oh, it's so cool. And now, you know, the pixies are playing and the buildings are blowing up. But yeah, when you when you look at it later on, you're sort of like, oh, no, he's just fucked up or he's just possibly dead. (laughs) So, But it is very interesting. Um, yeah, because he he shot himself in the throat. Why would he be able to talk? He would not be able to talk or stand. No. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know in the book, Fight Club, the last scene takes place in a very, very white hospital room. And so there oh. are definitely some implications there, too. That I mean, both bodies of work are very, like, open to interpretation at the end. Sure. On purpose. Yeah. So, quick quick side note. Did you guys know, because I did not, that they made another movie, I guess, based on one of the other books for Talented Mr. Ripley, where John Malkovich plays an older version, and it's, like, Ripley's Game? I knew. No. I had no idea. 
I watched it's, the trailer. It's it looks not good. terrible. It is not good. If you, it it looks terrible. If you want, if you want like another version of Patricia Highsmith, like just watch Carol. Honestly, yeah. Also, yeah. I just found it really, really funny that they would do. I mean, that. yeah. He he had like four novels. There were like four Ripley novels. Um. So mm. in the talented Mr. Ripley was like a French film, and it like made a lot of money. Um, but what huh. I lo- yeah it uh, it was first a French film with French actors and it was very and like they cast actors for Dickie and um Dickie and Ripley that looked exactly like each other but they made but oh. but in this film in the French film they made Ripley less of a tortured soul and made him much more of like a thriller villain like very cackling ah. Um, and he, they yeah. they had him stick to the novel a bit more, which is when he seduces Marge, and actually like escapes with her, in the novel. Yeah, Madeline oh. was not interesting. Yeah, uh, not Madeline. Meredith was not in the novel. They wrote that in. I wonder why. Uh, mostly because oh, yeah. Kate Blanchett said that she wanted to be in the film, so they were like, okay, let's let's make <laughs> let's make Meredith a little bit bigger. <laughs> let's do that right now. Nice. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Miramax. Yeah, but I think <laughs> one thing that I do want to note, because I think it's really interesting, and I think it ties back to the identity of both the narrator and um, Tom Ripley, is that Patricia Highsmith often signed her name as the real Tom Ripley. Yeah, she would say. Really? That's very She would cool. sign her name Pat H. Huh. The real Ripley. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so so it's definitely like a very interesting <laughs> self-insert like queer identity like just manifestation that she just like really tried to explore real real hard. Um and of course the the novel that Carol is based off came out the year after Talented Mr. Ripley was published. Oh. So they were back to back. Just just like th- going to throw that out there as like a little treat. Yeah, so it's, it it definitely like conflates, um, much like Chuck Chuck Palahniuk and Fight Club conflated narrator, author, narration, etc. Patricia Highsmith right. was definitely doing that as well, even if that's not like visible in the film. Hmm, that's very interesting hmm. to know. Yeah, yeah, especially that it took. I mean, granted, this novel you said was written in fifty five, yes. so. They are a bit older, but yeah, the fact that the talented Mr. Ripley, which did fairly well, it was well received, but it took, you know, so many more years to get a movie like Carol made is very telling. Right. Yeah, like explicitly made. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's another another really interesting twist on identity politics within these novels and films and pieces of media. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, I was kind of looking back at uh, Anthony, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Min- Minghella? Minghella? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to see, like, he had made The English Patient mm-hmm. right before, um, which visually I could see, like, the tone being a little bit the mm-hmm. same, but it's it's very different. It's just kind of interesting that it would take so long for certain stories to get used, but that's very cool. I will say, you just mentioned tone briefly. I think yeah. the opening to The Talented Mr. Ripley, the tone of it is so weird and off-putting to me. Yeah. That he's a character who is learning to like jazz, but like the beginning yeah. is like very jazzy. And yeah. I feel like the opening credits are way too long. Like you're watching the oh, movie they're... and like they kind of stop showing credits for a while. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like part of your screen turns another color and there's another name. And you're like, all right, get through these credits. Yeah, they're like all weird geometrical cuts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> It's a very strange I, opening. I mean, it it definitely, as opposed to a lot of movies now, it really takes its time with the setup which I 
liked. I didn't find it boring, but like just to see him like quizzing himself, listening to all the jazz records or like mimicking different people's manners of speech and things like that. You're just kind of like, oh shit. Yeah. He's committing to this. He's living in this terrible apartment, listening to all this jazz. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely think it serves a purpose because I think the, the tone in the talented Mr. Ripley feels like it has a little bit of an identity issue. Whereas yeah. I feel like the tone in and the stylistic choices in uh, Fight Club seem much more sure of themselves. Definitely. They're a lot more brash, too. Mm-hmm. They're just like really in your face, but in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, uh, any closing thoughts from either of you guys on these? Yeah? Yeah? We talked them up. All right. Mm-hmm. Pre- pretty good. <laughs> yeah, pretty both really I good. <laughs> yeah, they were they were fun rewatches. They're they're strange movies, but they hold up. <laughs> yep, Matt Damon's really yeah. cute. So, uh, Matt Damon. Yeah, I was uh, before we got on the recording. I was asking Burn, have you seen School Ties? Have you ever seen School Ties, Linda? Mm-mm. Where it's like no. Brendan Fraser is secretly Jewish, and then it's a whole bunch of kids at a prep school that are all Christian, and and Matt Damon is very what? much the bully <gasps> in that, and he's he's horrible. But you guys should watch that sometime. <laughs> I love horror. I like Brendan I think Fraser. It's around, yeah, I think it's around the same time frame. It might be a year or two before or after Ripley. So yeah, hmm. he he looks. He looks the same age, pretty much. Yeah. So. Maybe pre-mummy yeah. or post-mummy, but very close. Yeah. 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 It's, it's good. Um, so, yeah. Tri-Kai 9 is not the only Story Screen Presents podcast. We have a whole wealth of different varieties of topics and media types, TV, film, old and new. Um, you can go over to our website, storyscreenbeacon.com, to check out all of our content, whether it's articles, reviews, podcasts. We are starting to break into video reviews and content now. Um, if you like what you hear today, please throw us a like or subscribe. And we also have exclusive content available for a mere $5 a month if you join our brand new membership program, which is only going to expand in its benefits in the coming months. So, yeah, please do check us out, storyscreenbeacon.com. Linda, Byrne, thank Thank you as always. Thank you for having us. Always lovely to chat with you, even over the Zoom. Zoom, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see you soon. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.